The life of General Belisarius. Despair in Rome. Now, remembering the former failure of Vitages at the head of 150,000 men, Totila, whose forces did not probably exceed a fifth of that number, declined to put Rome under siege and applied himself to the more easy and promising task of a closed blockade. No supplies from the neighboring country were allowed to enter the gates, and the fleet was stationed at the Lapari Islands to intercept the usual convoys of Sicilian corn. The defense of the city had been entrusted to Bessius, the same whose avarice and valor were displayed in the first Italian war, and the garrison, after all of its losses from the death or desertion, should still muster 3,000 soldiers. Besides these, a detachment from the guards of Belisarius had succeeded in safely traversing the countryside from Ravenna, and the general had seized this opportunity of transmitting instructions and expressingly desiring Bessius not to hazard his scanty forces in skirmishes or sallies, but to confine himself to the protection of the walls. This injunction was transgressed by the thoughtless courage of those very officers who had conveyed it to Rome. In spite of every remonstrance, they attacked the vanguard of Totila and justified the prudence of their general by their failure and death. Bessius was warned by their example, and through a singular fatality, his too strict and unbending adherence to the command of Belisarius produced as great an evil as had resulted from rashly disobeying them. On the arrival of, the, of Valentine and Phocius at Porto, they entreated Bessius to a second sally, their enterprise against one of the Gothic encampments. But the Byzantine garrison remained immovably fixed to the ramparts, and most of the Byzantine auxiliaries were accordingly killed or dispersed in their unassisted attack. Some time before the beginning of the siege, Pope Vigilus had been summoned to the, to the presence of the emperor and had already arrived in Sicily on his way to Constantinople when he learned that Rome was surrounded by the Goths and threatened with all the calamities of famine in A.D. 546. His generous charity collected a number of ships and stored with them abundant provisions. They succeeded in eluding the vigilance of the Gothic fleet and were already at the very point of reaching Porto when the approaching squadron was unfortunately spotted by the barbarians on shore. A strong party of the enemy concealed themselves in the outworks at the mouth of the harbor in order to surprise and seize the crews immediately on their landing, and the Byzantine garrison, too feeble to sally forth and dislodge these artful adversaries, could only, by waving their cloaks from the rampart, give their friends a signal to beware. But the Sicilians, mistaking these equivocal gestures for marks of exultation at unexpected arrival of supplies, availed themselves of a favorable breeze and sailed headlong into the hostile snare. Not a single ship escaped. All the stores were taken, and the Byzantines on board were massacred to a man, with the exception of a bishop, reserved for a personal interview with Totila. This prelate, however, had but little cause to rejoice in his reprieve when the Gothic monarch found his questions with regard to the forces and intentions of the Byzantine army either skillfully evaded or answered by patriotic falsehoods, he, in a transport of savage anger, ordered his attendants to cut off the hands of his captive. From this time forward, no hope of supplies from Sicily could be entertained by the inhabitants of the garrison of Rome, and they began to undergo more and more hardships of scarcity. It was therefore resolved to enter in the terms with Totila and to propose a truce with the promise of surrendering the city should no Byzantine reinforcements speedily arrive. 
For this important mission, they chose the archdeacon Pelagius, whose talents some years afterwards raised him to the papal throne, and whose liberality during the prevailing distress had greatly endeared him to the people. The reverend envoy was graciously received by Totila, who even declared himself willing to grant any request he might make, provided it did not relate to the Sicilians. On these ungrateful islanders, he owned himself determined to wreak the, the severest vengeance for their ready welcome and aid to Belisarius at the outset of the war. If such, replied the wary priest, be your fixed intention with regard to Sicily, and that your resentment is thus implacable for injuries, neither personal nor recent, what degree of reliance can the Byzantines place on your mercy in Rome, for they have actually borne arms against you? With this answer, Pelagius left the Gothic camp and returned to share the sufferings of his fellow citizens. Their wretchedness was embittered by the unfeeling avarice of Bessius, who hoarded his supplies of corn until the increasing scarcity enabled him to dole it out at, ex at extravagant prices. Even small amounts of grain now commonly sold for seven pieces of gold, an ox, some few were occasionally captured, produced no less than fifty, and soldiers were tempted by the prospect of enormous gain to deny themselves part of their scanty rations. Thus the fortunes of the wealthy Romans were quickly drained, and they found it necessary to appease the pangs of hunger by yielding their plate and furniture to the rapacious cruelty of Bessius. Poor were happy if they succeeded in obtaining a tasteless mixture, in which one quarter of flour was added three quarters of bran. Among them, the possession of a dead horse or any other carcass was looked upon as a sort of treasure, and furnished a meal of unusual luxury. But the greater number of the citizens only sustained their existence by herbs that they could collect. In each ruin, they, which, the, which the degenerate Italians had never prized nor spared for its own magnificence, or as a memorial to their forefathers, they now discovered a real value from the abundance of grass and nettles which it bore. To this miserable food, both citizens and soldiers were finally reduced when no other resource remained, when even cats and dogs and mice had already been devoured. Day after day, a famished crowd encompassed the palace of Bessius, beseeching that he would either unlock his granaries or permit their departure from Rome, or that if neither alternative were allowed them, he would at least, by a speedy execution, save them from lingering tortures that they endured. His attendants coolly replied that to feed them was impossible, to dismiss them was dangerous, and to kill them was unlawful. To the rich, however, the avarice of Bessius already sold the permission of leaving the city, but many found their strength too much broken for the journey and died on the road, while the fierceness of the Gothic troops proved equally fatal to those who fell into their hands. Is such a gloomy picture by Procopius really drawn from this period? Is it accurate? Well, he never beheld what was going on in Rome in person, and there are two circumstances which might lessen the dis how disastrous this is. And the first one is, at the conclusion of the siege, many of the Roman nobles still possessed their horses, whereas they would have doubtlessly been killed for food if their owners had been urged on by such utter famine. Secondly, after asserting that near nearly all the besieged had at last consumed substance entirely of wild herbs, described the waning ghost-like aspect to which this spare diet had reduced them. But this wretched source of hunger is attended by directly opposite effects, rendering the body bloated with many of the symptoms of dropsy. 
some allowances should therefore be made to the narrative of the Greek historian. Yet enough will remain to provide the deplorable conditions to which at this time the ancient capital had fallen. The last hope which the wretched inhabitants could entertain for succor or deliverance was drawn from the well-known skill of Belisarius. The general was at Draconium, vainly laboring to hasten the promised reinforcements from Constantinople. Finally, after a tardy adjunction of all the troops and all their employments were a matter of deliberation, it was proposed by John the Sanguinary to disembark on the opposite coast of Italy and march straight to Rome. But several considerations restrained Belisarius from approving this adventurous design. His forces were still far too inferior to those of Tertilla, and could not, without the most desperate rashness, run the hazard of a battle. The growing distress in Rome, however, required that not a moment be lost in affording in relief, but a journey by land might be retarded by some unforeseen occurrences, and all the events would consume no less than forty days, while a favorable wind might waft the fleet in five. The general therefore thought it prudent to proceed by sea with the main part of his army, and at the same time dispatched John the Sanguinary with his best light cavalry to scatter the handful of barbarians which garrisoned Apulia, and then rejoin him in the neighborhood of Rome. By this means the same extent of territory would be subdued as if the whole army had marched across it, and on the other hand the squadrons of John, free from all encumbrances and protected by its smallness, might arrive more speedily at its destination and more easily elude pursuit. Having left John with the sufficient forces and full instructions for his enterprise, Belisarius sailed from Dracanium. Now, the sources for this, the Wars of Justinian by Procopius, Short History of Byzantium by Norwich, Byzantine Art of War by Decker, and Byzantine Army, 324 to 1453 by Turnbull, and The Life of Belisarius by Mahome. So I hope you enjoyed that, and as always, don't forget to come by the website, summahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com, and ask a question, leave a comment, check out our merchandise, and if you like what we're doing, please feel free to support us. Thank you very much.